0: Tonight we have the joy of turning in our Bibles to the book of Acts. You turn there with me to Acts chapter 2.
1: I'll be reading a portion of the description of Pentecost in Acts. While you're turning there, you can find the, the place where we'll be reading in your bulletin. Acts chapter 2, first verses 22 through 24, and then verses 36 through 41. You'll also notice that I reference Westminster Shorter Catechism. Questions and answers 84 and 85. Now, if you're very attentive, you will note that last week, the topic was guided by question answer 86, so we're actually going backwards. The reason for that was the snow day. So we're going back to 84 and 85. It's good truth, just slightly out of order. Again, I'm very thankful to belong to a tradition where we have tried to summarize biblical truth found in a confession. Doesn't it mean it's a word of God, it's not but we believe it's a faithful summary, and I love being guided by these on our Sunday evening services. The reason for that is twofold. One is it helps us as we reaffirm basic biblical truth. It's also helpful for us if we've never heard this before, and so as we go through the Shorter Catechism, we cover those topics that every Christian ought to know, and question 84 asks, what does every sin deserve? The answer is every sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and in that which is to come. So question 85 asks, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse that is due for us for our sin? The answer is to escape the wrath and curse of God which is due to us for our sin. God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ and repentance unto life with a diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ is communicated to us with His benefits of redemption. So that phrase, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ and repentance unto life. I hope you hear that tonight in these verses from Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 22
0: and then reading through verse 24. Men of Israel hear these words...
1: because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then moving a few verses later, or further to verses 36 through 41, this continues Peter's words, "'Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "'Brothers, what shall we do?' So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. I'm still looking for the day when one of my sermons will have that effect. Let's pray to the Lord, and then we'll hear his word.
0: Father, at the very core of the Christian faith is belief in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we want
1: to know what that means. Not just so that our heads will be informed, but Lord, our hearts need the conviction the catechism talks about, the conviction that leads to repentance and faith in Jesus. And I pray that your Spirit would give us that conviction tonight that leads to repentance and faith in Christ, and you would use the words I'm about to say to do that great work, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I know some of you are coming from a week, just like me, where you made some mistakes. For example, theoretically, of course, imagine that you went to buy donuts for your family and you forgot what kind of muffin your wife really enjoyed. And you brought home the wrong one. Or imagine you finally figure out everything that's on your grocery list. It took you a long time and you walk out the doors and you have this problem. You know what it is? You can't find your car. (laughs) That's just a mistake. It's not that you intended to do something wrong, but you did. Maybe if you scratched far enough under the surface, you would have thought to yourself, I should have done a better job of just remembering. I was a bit negligent there. But it's not a serious mistake, you say. If you go a little bit further, maybe you can remember during this previous week something that was a bit more serious. Imagine, for example, that you're in a hurry to leave work on Friday afternoon and you back your vehicle into your boss's truck and you see it in your rear view mirror, but rather stopping and going back into the office, you look around and no one else has seen. And you head almost all the way home before you think to yourself, I really need to go back and tell him what happened. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? And you can sense in that story that little bit of conviction for the sin that you have committed. But let me even go one layer deeper into your heart. Maybe there's a sin that you struggle with and you have for a long time. Maybe it's being cutting toward other people. Maybe it's a lack of generosity. Maybe it's covetousness. Maybe it's a loss Whatever it is, it's something that you struggled with for a long, long time and you've said to yourself over and over, there's going to come to a point where I'm going to stop doing this. I'm just going to stop. And yet you find yourself struggling with that same thing over and over and over again. Tonight is the night I hope based on these verses from Acts chapter 2, that each of us will not only understand what it means to be convicted of our sin, maybe tonight is also the moment in which the Lord works that conviction of your sin for the thing that you might struggle with. Because to be honest with you, friends, this sermon is not, first of all, just about truth. It is about truth. It is about real truth, perhaps the greatest truth the world needs to know. That is, we are at enmity with God and there's peace in Jesus Christ. It's the truth we all need to know. But it's designed for one step further than that. That not just your head would be informed, but you would feel in the very core of your being that first necessary step to faith in Jesus Christ that is what the catechism refers to as conviction that leads to repentance and therefore to faith. Maybe you'll feel that for the first time, maybe to remind you in great thanksgiving for where the Lord has brought you to already. But I want you to think about two very core words that come in this passage, these verses that I read. The words are conviction and repentance. And what I want you to do is to celebrate your conviction, that conviction of sin, and to respond to that conviction with Repentance. Let me show you in these words from Acts chapter 2 how that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. In order for you to understand this comes from the Word of God, I need to introduce you or sort of insert us into the middle of what's happening in Acts chapter 2. It is Pentecost. Maybe you know that great story, maybe you don't. I'd love to run through it again. Even if you know it, try to pay good attention because it's such a fascinating story. By this point in the Bible, Jesus has lived and died and ascended. And he promised that after he ascended, he would send, he said, a helper or an advocate after him. And this advocate would lead us into the truth. He said that is his Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, that's what we're reading about, the fulfillment of that promise that Jesus would be with you always to the very end of the age, and He would be with you by the Spirit that He would send. This is Acts chapter 2. His Spirit is here. And our God chooses to send the Spirit at one of the great Old Testament agricultural feasts. It was a feast of Pentecost. Pentecost. And because it was a great feast, there were people from all over in Jerusalem, god fears from all over the known world, along with the Jews from all the areas in Israel. And it is during this festival, you might look there in verses 1 through 4 of Acts chapter 2, that we are told that the disciples of Christ, whom at this moment in history numbered about 120 as far as we can tell, they are meeting together in a building. And suddenly we read in the scriptures there was a sound of a great and mighty rushing wind and there were tongues of fire, small flames. Imagine we have a big lighter and it flicks on. There was something sort of like that that appeared above the heads of those disciples, those 120 disciples there in that room. These are all indications that God is giving us that the promise that Jesus made is coming true. The Spirit has arrived. In this description of the rushing wind and the flame of fire, these are all filled with Old Testament overtones. These are all indications that the long story of redemption has not only been focused in Jesus Christ while he was on earth, but now the work of Jesus Christ is continuing. You might remember all the way at the beginning of the Scriptures, we read about the Spirit of God coming as the breath of God upon the creation. you might know the Shekinah cloud of glory that led the Israelites through, out of the land of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the 40 years in the desert. This was the Shekinah glory, the fire of God that led them. Now the fire of God in small bits is being placed upon the head of his disciples. And I want you to note something that's almost incidental to this story. The sound of the wind, this sound in verse 6, draws a huge crowd of people, all those who were there for Pentecost. And we find out in verse 41 that there were thousands of people who were drawn to the place where the disciples were when they hear the wind and they see the tongues of fire. Now, all that stands as background. When all of this is happening, the Apostle Peter stands up and on behalf of all of the other Apostles explains what is happening. And in order to understand what is happening, Peter says you must understand who Jesus is. Peter takes the crowd back to the prophet Joel, who told about a great time when great wonders would come. Verse 21 records, really repeats what Joel says. I will pour out my Spirit in all flesh, and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is Old Testament promise fulfilled in Jesus, repeated here. Peter then connects the signs and wonders that Jesus did on earth with the promise fulfilled that Jesus is actually the Messiah. He is the one God sent to die for his people. You don't believe it? Look at what Jesus did. Who could do this but the Messiah? But then Peter says, although Jesus was put to death, he rose again according to the prophecy of God. He has ascended, and from there he has his spirit. As he says to the crowd, all of you can clearly see, the spirit has come. And listen carefully then to the conclusion of what Peter says to the crowd about how great Jesus is. Peter says these words. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, against all of this history, Old Testament leading up to Jesus, the life of Jesus himself, Peter draws to conclusion an explanation not only of what's happening on Pentecost, But he draws to conclusion his summary about the life of Jesus that explains why the Spirit has come with these words. You crucified Jesus. Now if you just listen to this, (laughs) here were the crowds. You might think to yourself, how very impolite Peter's making an accusation to the Jewish people that they were the ones who put Jesus to death. Why would Peter do that? How was it possible for him to do that? It is entirely likely that some of those who were listening to the words of Peter were actually at Jesus' crucifixion. And he's pointing this out to them. You put the Messiah to death. But it also is true that in an important sense, Peter is pointing to the reason why every person might be convicted before the God of the universe. These Israelites who put Jesus to death did so because they did not acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's why they put him to death. Peter said if you would have known who Jesus was, you would have never imagined to put Jesus to death. And that same explanation of rebellion against God applies to everyone, whether we were literally there before Pontius Pilate chanting, crucify Him, crucify Him. At the very heart of our rebellion, our human rebellion against God, is an unwillingness to acknowledge God as God, and therefore no sense of why we would ever trust in Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is a universal question that hangs not only above this passage and these words that Peter speaks in verse 21, but also forms a question that we must also consider here tonight, and that is, do we acknowledge Jesus as God's answer to our sin that He alone can bridge the distance between us and our Creator? Can Jesus, does Jesus actually do that? That question applies whether you are Jewish in background or not. As long as you are human, you're here breathing, your mind is functioning, there's life in your body. This question applies to you as it does to me. Do we acknowledge that we are sinners and there is no hope except in Jesus Christ? That we are called, really we are driven to the cross of Jesus Christ because there is nowhere else we can turn. There is no one who can do to us what Jesus is able to do. He can give us peace with our created God. Do we look to him for our hope? That's the question Peter is posing to them and also to us here tonight. Now, this is all a setup in order to get to this question.
0: How are we supposed to respond to that? How are we supposed to respond?
1: When the Jews heard Peter's words and the question he was posing, it says, and I want you to hear this, it says they were cut to the hearts. That means they were strongly convicted of their sin and their need for Jesus. Cut to the heart does not literally mean that their hearts were sliced open and you could see the darkness that was in there. It means that it went to the very heart of who they are, the very core of who they were. It was conviction at the deepest possible level it was not oh i've been caught i'm sorry let's forget about it move on this is us standing before the god of the universe and realizing what we have done and it is saying against you you only have i sinned and done what is evil in your sights god i am a sinner I have rebelled against you and failed to acknowledge Jesus Christ, to trust in him. I believed in myself more than Jesus. I have ignored my sinful condition. And now in the light of who you are and I see the greatness of Jesus, I am led
0: to an absolute position of humility. Simple question I have for you tonight is, do you ever experience that? Do you? I'm not suggesting that everyone's cut to the heart looks exactly the same.
1: Some of us are very reticent to show our emotions, and in the inside we are cut to the heart and outside there's no expression. But ordinarily for human beings, when we are cut to the heart, we're not only humble in our hearts, but there's a certain reaction that goes with it. It's the reaction of David. We're in Psalm 32 and 51. He is humbled before the Lord in an obvious way. There's no reservation. There's no holding back. There's no keeping part of his heart for himself. No, he says, I am deeply convicted of my sin.
0: You see me as I truly am. There's no faking it before you, God. I understand what you see. Again, I ask you, are you ever convicted in this way? Or do you
1: live your life hoping that as long as others don't see what's really going on in your heart, you'll be good enough? One of the most important things the men in prison taught me when I did prison ministry there is the nature of true repentance. I went to that prison thinking, "I am a pastor who has my life together. I've never been convicted of anything outside of a speeding ticket. I'm going to go there and show them a few things?" And you know what I realized? Is that many of the men who were in prison had a far greater sense of their conviction before the Lord than I'd ever realized? Some of the greatest sins I struggled with, these men showed me how to humble myself before the Lord. They were my teachers in the school of conviction of sin. I went in there to tell them essentially, be better people, trust in Jesus, but be better people. And they said to me, But do you know the depth of your sin? Do you know how awful it is that we appear before God and the fact that you are well-groomed with good clothes and very appealing breath does not commend you to the Lord? I'd say the same thing to you tonight. There's nothing naturally in our sinful condition that appeals to us, appeals to our God about us. In this moment, I want you to think about what could be happening in your own heart. The cut to the heart happens to them in this passage. It is an expression, as I've said, with a powerful picture. It is God poking at that spot, not allowing them or you to ignore it even giving you a restlessness until you see what is really there. If I can just put it this way, the work of Jesus Christ by His Spirit in this passage is not just in the presentation of the sermon, it is in the reaction to the sermon where these folks were caught to the heart. That's God's grace to us. That He would not leave us in a place where we look outwardly whole, but are corrupt in the inside. Which leads me to ask this question again. As you're listening to me explain this, are you convicted? Are you cut to the heart? Am I sensing my own natural rebellion against the God of the universe that cannot be made right apart from Jesus Christ? Have I wrestled with the fact that I have not looked to Jesus as I could? if I have not been convicted of my sin. I don't mean in any way to trouble those of us with a soft conscience. Some of us have been raised in circumstances where we were told you're never, you're never going to repent enough. And in fact, what's commendable is beating yourself up over and over and over. As long as you beat yourself up more, then you're doing what you're supposed to do. I'm not encouraging that. That in itself is a kind of perverse looking to your own action in order to be made right. I'm not commending that at all. This conviction of sin does not lead you to become more and more introspective. It leads you to become more dependent upon Jesus Christ. Do you see that? It's a huge difference. He's not saying if you only repent enough, finally you'll be good enough. It is to say, I have only what God has given me. That is a conviction of my sin and a trust in Jesus Christ. And as question 86 says,
0: what I'm called to do is rest and rely upon Jesus Christ. If in some way the Lord is being overt with you tonight,
1: be thankful for that. You could be in many, many other places tonight doing all kinds of things, but you're here. God has brought you here. God has given you this sermon to listen to, and perhaps God has convicted you as He often convicts me, and He prompts us to respond. And that according to the Scriptures is the very beginning of life in Christ, at least as we experience it that we have a heart that is convicted of our sin because we see ourselves before God as He truly is. Let me tell you what difference this makes. The first thing I want you to note is that the conviction that Peter is talking about is not, first of all, about you doing more. It is about you being honest and looking to Christ. The second thing I want you to note is that this gift is genuinely a gift. When we sense this conviction in our hearts, a response should be, thank you, Father, for showing me how much I need Jesus. If you've been in a place in your life where you are searching over and over and over, trying to find the key, the place for peace, where finally things will be made right. And then the Lord brings you to the end of yourself where you have to look into the darkness of your own heart. When he brings you to that point of conviction,
0: you know how bright the beauty of Jesus Christ is in that moment. And I am deeply grateful myself And I hope you would affirm this in your own life as well.
1: That you are thankful that God has not left you where you could be. Even if you are, as I was often in my life, a very well put together person. People said, wow, he is such a good young man. Even though my heart was so corrupt and was struggling so deeply with sin. As the Lord has brought me to conviction, I pray he would you as well. Not that he brings that to you one time and it's done, but it sets us on a life where we first have deep conviction looking to Christ and then we come more and more to depend on him. There are small points of conviction after that. Do you not have that in your life? We are sort of walking away and the Lord will read some passage of Scripture to your heart and you're like, oh, wait a minute. I have not been obeying the Lord in that place Let me turn to Jesus. He will forgive. There's a point of course correction. That's the kindness of the Lord to us. It also leaves us in a place, and I just want to emphasize this, when we sense that conviction in our hearts, it leaves us in a place where we no longer have to guess what the Lord is doing. You see, it is the Lord who causes us to hear it is up to Him to keep our ears open. It rests on Him to continue to hold us so that what Jesus said in John 6 verse 39 is absolutely true. This is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. That's God's truth. And what begins that moment of conviction, God promises that it will remain true. He will hold you and keep you. Which brings me to the second word that I want you to hear, and I'm going to be more brief about this. It was conviction as well as repentance. It is God who opens our hearts to hear, to believe, And in this passage, we see the response of these people when God opened their heart, cut them to their very heart, and they responded. How did they respond? First, it says in verse 38, they repented. That is, they turned away from themselves and their pattern of life, and they turned to the Jesus that Peter was proclaiming. The moment when you turn from conviction to repentance, it's hard to know. They fit so well together. When you're convicted of your sin and you see yourself before a holy God, you have every desire to turn away from the way that you were before. Maybe it's just small ways. Maybe it's grand ways. You may have to struggle with some of the sins that are close to your heart for a long time. But when I tell you that the Christian life is a life of repentance, I'm not simply making that up. Our Reformed forefathers... Said, do you want to summarize what the Christian life is like? It is looking to Jesus and repenting as a lifestyle. It is as the prayer group prayed on Wednesday night help us to become a church, to become a church that is a church that repents well, that is characterized by its repentance. It's not because we're looking to beat ourselves up, it is because in a repentance we point to the greatness of Jesus. We want Jesus to be glorified, for him to be shown that all, for all that he is. And the way that God shows Jesus for all that he is, is in the hearts and the lives of people who are turning away from themselves to him. What a tremendous testimony that is. If you are a parent with children no longer, no matter how old those children are, the greatest gift you can give to your children is to give them an example of repentance and turning to Jesus. That is a far greater gift than paying for their college education or helping them buy their first house. Even Even though those things are wonderful and if you have the ability to do it, go for it. But at the very core of what you're hoping for your children, that you're hoping will happen in your friends, in your community, in this church, is the very thing that we see the Israelites doing in this passage, being cut to the heart and repenting in order to believe in Jesus every true believer will want to know what God says will more and more hate what God hates and want more and more to love what God loves again a very direct question for you tonight does that define who you are I know it's uneven it's uneven in my life not that you should try to be like me let me tell you that's not what you're aiming for only I'm familiar with that struggle it's a real struggle I'm not saying you listen to Peter's words and you say, oh, I'm cut to the heart, I repent. Done with the struggle. What I'm saying is you're just starting. You're just starting that life of repentance. But may it characterize your life. Does it? Someday when your children come to this building or another like it, and they're asked to testify about what their mom or dad was like when your closest friend Is asked to testify what you are like, would they say, My mom or dad, my friend, was a person who loved Jesus Christ and lived a life of repentance? In order to encourage that, we see in these verses that these Christians joined a body of believers. I noted this morning in the introduction to our service. That what characterizes our church, I pray, is a church that loves the truth of God's God's word that points us to Jesus and loves the fellowship of God's people because apart from that, you cannot grow as a disciple. That's exactly what we see here. Conviction that leads to repentance that means to become part of a body of repenters called the church. Tonight, as I read this passage with you and as I think about it, meditate on it, it's hard for me to overstate how significant this is. The reason it's found at this critical point in the shorter catechism is because it lies at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. There are all kinds of things that people say ought to characterize a follower of Christ be a good person show up at church, contribute liberally, be generous with others, all those things are great. But if you want to reduce it to the most essential characteristics of a follower of Christ, it is this. And this is what I'm commending to you, not only for your head, but also your heart. That you're deeply convicted of your sin. That you look to Jesus for your hope and you lead a life of repentance in a community of believers. That's what the Lord is not only telling you tonight,
0: but is asking you to deeply consider. Would you join me in prayer? Father, so much of what we read in your Word leads us to ponder whoever we are with you.
1: And again, it is not by desire, because I know it is not your desire, Father, for those of us with a tender conscience to lead us to doubt and to wonder if we've repented well enough. But the greater share of us, and what is true for the vast majority of people in our world, for those of us who were not raised in those places that would lead to those tender consciences, Father, what is true for most of us is not that our consciences are too tender, but that they're hard. And we try to excuse our sin. We try to look past it beyond it. And if you've never brought us tonight to that point of deep conviction and looking to Jesus Christ for our hope, if you've never brought us to a point where we've started that walk with Jesus, then I pray that you would do that tonight.
0: And Lord, if you have done that, we give you deep thanks. We rejoice over it, Lord, that we are your workmanship. But then we also
1: pray, as Peter indicates that the Israelites did, the Jews did in this passage, that you would continue to give us that heart of repentance. That instead of proclaiming how great we are and how righteous our judgments are, we would demonstrate to those around us a heart that is quick to repent and to show the greatness of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Lord, I pray along with our group that prays every Wednesday night that you would make us a congregation that is characterized by repentance and
0: faith in Jesus Christ. That is what we ask as we come in Jesus' name, amen.